Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 122, Revolution of the Body, or Jesse, like they say in France, Revolution Decor. We are broadcasting live with live for us from our worldwide headquarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia. Jesse, it's good to be with you, my brother. It's good to be here. You know, I, I took French in high school. But I don't remember anything of it. I really don't. <laughs> I took it in high school and a little bit uh, in college. So I took oh, two, yeah. I think, two classes in college. And uh, I really liked it. I wish if I was in a French-speaking country, it might come back. Revolution de corps sounds yeah. better than revolution of the body. I uh, figured we'd go continental European mm. to talk mm. about. the. We have uh, a lot of French listeners out there. Maybe. Yeah, all our French listeners are French speakers. Paul Helms, what's up? Uh, my friend Paul is a pastor in Paris and uh, during the pandemic, too. Okay. How about that? So, But Jesse, today's... Well, bon- bonjour, Paul. Bonjour, Paul. <laughs> bonjour, Abby. Hey, I'm excited about today's... I'm, I'm a little... I have trepidation. I have a little bit of trepidation, meaning I, we've been trying to do this I for like two or three weeks. trepidation in my body. <laughs> But I, but yeah, I'm excited. We have been trying to do this. One of us has been sick. Yeah, I, I had a little uh, revolution in my body of a cold or a, a flu or an allergy or something. It could have been COVID, um, but I'm feeling better now. Last week, I was a little bit groggy on Thursday when we were going to do this, and my voice was gone, so I figured we'd have to wait. Week before, we tried to do it too, but I didn't feel uh, well-equipped enough. I felt like I needed to read portions of books still that I had not read. And some of you guys do not know this about this podcast is that I feel like if I don't overread on a subject that I feel like I shouldn't talk about it. And then I never use the stuff I read on the podcast. And so I'm probably, probably plenty prepared, but true. Yeah. I'm excited about today. I'm also, I want to, I want to make a a promise to our listeners that I am going to review. I'm going to review ish. In the next episode, I the think. movie Pig, the movie Pig, with my favorite actor Nicholas Cage. <laughs> I gotta watch this movie. I, I saw it. It's like, uh, is it a thriller horror no, kind of no, movie? No, no, no. Well, I mean, so that's the problem. Is the is the trailer makes it seem like it's John Wick with a pig? Yeah, yeah. Where's my pig? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. And he's gonna like tear tear down all the barbecue here's, pits in the correct, land or correct. something. And here, here's my here's my teaser, my teaser ah. to next to, to the review ish teaser ish. It's much more of a, um, you know, I don't think it's overtly Christian. In some ways, maybe there's some kind of Buddhist elements to it, mm-hmm. but I, I think mm-hmm. it actually is a kind of uh, a morality play on loving your enemies. Oh wow! Hey. We need more of that today, Jesse, particularly in our time and space. I, I uh, got the opportunity to be blessed and loved by an enemy uh, this weekend. I was at the ACC Wrestling Championships, and I was scheduled to do a chapel service for the coaches and coaching staff, and it was great. We There's six teams that were still wrestling the ACC, and we had about a dozen coaches come out to this chapel. But I got up to go over there, Jesse, and my rental car would not start, and that's a whole other saga I'm not going to share on the air, but Enterprise finally did the right thing in that but I got stuck in Charlottesville for almost two days because of this car but so I started to try to figure out how to get over there I didn't even think to Uber I just like I'm gonna hitchhike I don't know why I wanted to try to be old school uh, and hitchhike Uh, but I got a ride with an NC State guy who uh, actually two guys in a minivan that was full of stuff boxes and stuff I don't know what was in their car but one guy got out and said, hey, just take him over and come back, get me, and then we'll do our plans. As wow, perfect. go Wolfpack. And I said, hey, man, I got Tar Heels tattooed on my leg. Hey, we beat Coach K 
in his last game. Shout out. Um, I got Tar Heels on my leg and I got a Virginia Tech shirt on and Virginia Tech, NC State wrestling do not like each other. Enemies. So I was like, if you can tolerate that, he goes, just barely get in. But I told him I was going to do, to do the Lord's work, so to speak. And I was loved by a good Samaritan wow. who, uh, was wearing wolf pack and he even posed with his little wolf pack fingers when I did a little selfie. Yeah. yeah. So, but today's topic, Jesse, revolution decor or revolution of the body, right? We are, we've been talking about purposes of our bodies. And today we're going to talk about our civilization, Jesse, in America and maybe European Western civilization kind of idea and a departure, right? Uh, from certain ideas of design in the body, purpose in the body that we've been talking about in this series. We're going to talk about a departure from that that's necessarily going to take us into the sexual revolution briefly. And so, Today, I want to give a little rejoinder as we begin this because there are, there's a big hesitancy in our culture of discussing things that may cause concern to others or maybe be out of step with the mainstream or cause an offense. And so there can be a passivity, right? Where we don't want to talk about these things because that might make somebody mad. Uh, on the other hand, there's kind of this brazen posture, Jesse, that we see far too often and from, from many Christians about yeah. like, Hey, we're going to talk about it and we're going to just be jerks the whole time. And so one of the things I want to say at the beginning is that, look, we don't want to abandon Christian teaching on things like creation, right? Uh, design, sex, marriage, in order to follow cultural teachings on this stuff. But we don't want to be, so we don't want to be cowards and cower before the cultural hegemonies of sexual powers, as it were. But we don't want to just stand up and be jerks. Um, One of the passages in the Bible, it says that, hey, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, right? Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you and do so with gentleness and respect. But Jesse, I do have a concern today that things like like the design of the body and the purpose of the body, that there is a little bit of fear amongst people who follow Jesus. Yeah, you know, interestingly, yeah. you, you just quoted First Peter uh, 3.15. 3, and yeah. in, in verse 16, he goes on to say, with a clear or good conscience. And yeah. so there's, there's an idea there that Peter's even talking about of uh, having integrity. So if, you, you know, if, you, if you've got a biblical convictions, let's right. say, uh, we can't be passive or fearful about stating those when the opportunity is right. That's right. And yet we have to do a gentle. So in yeah. other words, the passive, we can't, can't give in to the passivity. Yeah. And, and we don't want to be jerks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> jerks for Jesus isn't a good ministry. Um, but I, I want to say that there's this reality that it's a temptation either to be uh, cowardly about truths that are taught by Jesus Christ, right? Or to kind of just, think that we're going to just be just because we're bold that's enough and i really you know gk chesterton has been a you know i love his writings his book orthodoxy is one of my favorite books outside of scripture and he he said this in chapter three uh of orthodoxy a chapter that's called the suicide of thought which i think is a great chapter he says this but what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, and modesty has settled on the organ of conviction where it's never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, right, but undoubting about the truth. 
Today, this has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, that part of a man uh, that a man does exert is exactly the part he ought not to exert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt the divine reason or truthfulness or design. And so Chesterton is really clear here is that today we love to assert ourselves, our self, our will, our wants, our offendedness, our this and that, while being humble about saying anything true in the world. And he said it's precisely the opposite, that God's design, God's truth, God's purpose is the convictions in which we must stand, right, if, if we belong to him. Uh, and and the assertion of ourselves as jerks or making ourselves the issue or the point of everything is precisely what we ought not to do. So we don't want to be disrespectful of persons. You know, our culture is full of that, particularly, you know, so fueled by social media. Um, but we don't want to float around accepting every idea in order just to be nice. There's a shocking phrase, Jesse, in the Old Testament. One of my favorite Old Testament books is the book of Judges. It's this wonderful narrative book. I've said this often. It's the book I think that could be most turned into a graphic novel or some crazy movie. But there's this passage, this refrain that's uh, repeated over and over. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Kind of this individual autonomous view of morality. And I do think, Jesse... Uh, we live in similar days where people just do what is right in their eyes. No one's to question it. If you question the truth of somebody's statements, then you're mean. Um, what we want is to be kind, compassionate people of conviction. Our posture, one of service, our place amongst people as a believer in Christ with convictions. Um, and that's what we want to do related to human body. Jesse, where we've been in this series, we've talked about, hey, we are a unity, body and soul, psychosomatic unity of persons. This is God's design for us, both the blessings of embodiment, the difficulty of embodiment, you know, getting sick, back hurting, getting old, you know, kind of, you don't get uh, older and it gets easier. Eventually our bodies will collapse into the dust from which we were made. And, but, you know, Jesus valued with his own life, becoming embodied, the incarnation, he lived this out. This is why the body is even given divine sanction that he tabernacled in a human form. Uh, So we should value and care for our embodied life, feeding and caring for it and looking to honor God with our bodies. And so the idea I've been sharing, Jesse, uh, our bodies are instruments to be played in honor of the king not weaponized to dishonor God. Very important. We forget the honor of God in our lives and debase other human beings. And the denial of these truths has been, uh, what should we say, consequential in our culture. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I was just thinking about this in terms of Ephesians 5 when, uh, you know, I, I was doing a little bit of teaching at Valley Bible Church where I where I pastor and it was on vocation. I was talking about how, Hey, we got, we, we work for the love of God. We work for the love of neighbor. We work for the love of the work, but also we work for the love of ourselves. Yeah. And, and basing that on Ephesians five, when, which is, is interesting because Paul is talking about sexual dynamics between a husband and a wife, right? uh, Relational, moral, social dynamics in a marriage. And he is basing it on, no one ever hated his own body. You yeah. know, he who loves his wife loves his, his, his himself. Yeah. His own uh, flesh. And so right? it's really even like that kind of interpersonal, uh, and even sexual dynamics in a marriage yeah. are based on our embodied instrumentation, our embodied care, our unity of self. And the fact that this person, yeah. who I am, 
exist to honor God and not to injure the That's other, right. but to serve the other. That's right. You know, there's a lot in our culture that, you know, has been so influenced by what we'd say philosophical naturalism, evolutionary naturalism, that we are only these embodied creatures that have natural needs. And so obviously sexuality is one of the key needs in that worldview, you know, to propagate the genes of the species, the only purpose for which the body is doing is this is something as a Christian that we have to look at very carefully because there are natural or bodily needs. We have food, air. Um, certainly God has made us sexual for a reason, and those are part of his design for us. In part, not fully, uh, part of the, the body's um, being sexed, dimorph, sexual dimorphism, male and female, and the purposes of those things. Where our culture has gone astray is that we would say, because we have natural needs, you should just fulfill all your urges. And this is where the idea of being an embodied soulish person for honoring God and people, loving God and neighbor with our bodies through things like discipline or self-restraint, self-control uh, is certainly not in vogue as much uh, today, almost until after the fact, till somebody does something with their bodies that's very wrong, and then it's like, okay, now we need to punish, but rather uh, discipling or discipline oneself to say, hey, let's do good, right, with our bodies is something that is uh, not talked about as much. And I was just going to say, you know, even within kind of, uh, we talked about this off, off, uh, off mic uh, last time we were together about how like, for me, again, you know, you and I have similar backgrounds, did not grow up in the church. I grew up in, in the Roman Catholic context as a kid. And there was this kind of purity culture stuff going on in the in the 90s when I was kind of coming up and looking into the evangelical world. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it felt like it kind of furthered the disembodiment in some ways, you know, right? So instead of it being like, well, here the world is presenting this, this kind of um, division between a holistic, soulish-bodied, uh, honor to God. Now it's divided. You're just body. What you do over here doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. And the denial of the body by some Christian circles left me. I mean, I remember as a college student, me and a friend of mine named Pat, who was a football player had come to Christ. He and I were talking about, it's like, it seems like all the Christian groups want to talk about is sex and beer. I was like, well, that's probably because college students probably were running running a little wild with sex and beer. Um, but to, to talk about sexual embodiment and just kind of look at the world, oh, that's bad, so then don't do it, don't talk about it, don't disciple within it or what it is, is a disaster. And I think that's where yeah. things like purity cultures, like, hey, don't talk about it, just like don't do it till you get married, falls far short of the... I, I wrote a little ebook um, on sexuality and the glory of God for this reason, and even give that talk still on university campuses to talk more about purpose and more about the the beauty of playing our instrumental bodies before the king and walking with God embodied is important. because. But, but if you leave purpose like our culture has done, we have a big problem. And so what I want to do, Jesse, is now walk through a progression that has happened already in our society. Some of it may even be shocking to some of you listening to think, wow, is it really that far down this road? Uh, yes, it will be uh, down the road this far. But when you, dis- when you separate, right, 
purpose and design from God from our bodies. We talked about this, Jesse, in the series on morality and goodness, right? If you yeah. separate purpose and design, then what are you left with? We're just doing things, right? Is it good or bad? If there is no God to say, who says? Well, we don't know. Uh, sexuality is, has undergone a similar kind of uh, process in Western civilization. When you separate sexuality in our bodies from marriage, uh, and its design purposes, right? Uh, sex becomes something different. It becomes a more of a self-doing things for its pleasure or the pleasure of others, rather than the things that the scriptures talk about when it talks about the uniting of human bodies together, like things like procreation, making babies, the unification of people into kind of this idea of oneness, that they'll become one flesh. This is the book of Genesis. Uh, the blessing and recreation of a trusting relationship in the inter twining of our bodies in marriage, the the changing of ourselves to use discipline, self-control, and worship and glory uh, to be sanctified or changed in, in character and who we are. Uh, and then certainly the one I think a lot of 19-year-old college students get surprised by that that this intertwining of our bodies uh, in sexuality is designed to glorify God. Uh, the heightened uh, pleasurability and worship in a married union is designed to be reflective of Christ's covenant-keeping, faithful, intense, passionate love for uh, His church. Amen. I'll just I'll throw a resource out that I find helpful in this uh, in this arena, it's it's arguing really from a kind of common law or a you know a natural revelation sort of argument. But you don't want to say natural law, do you? <laughs> natural law, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I'm not afraid of that. Um, it's called "What Is Marriage: Man and Woman: A Defense" by uh, Gerges Anderson and Robbie George, and they call this comprehensive union. Uh, where basically, I'll just read one little bit here first. Marriage is a comprehensive union of person that unites two people in their most basic dimensions in their minds and bodies. And in, and in our case, yeah. we'll, we'll just go ahead and say souls and bodies. Yeah. Second, it unites them with, with respect to procreation, family life, and its broad domestic sharing. And third, it unites them permanently and exclusively. And uh, then they make a really great case in there about being ordered towards a telos, towards an yeah. end of yeah. exactly what we just went through with procreation, unification, yeah. recreation, sanctification. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And Jesse, this is something I, I, I didn't talk to you about this ahead of time, but I want to be really clear that this idea that male and female created and then designed to be united together in this sort of union is not simply a Christian thing, but a creational thing uh, that people across religions or because they're human beings made by God are designed to, in their bodies, interact in this way, sexual union, marriage, and and. Christian marriage obviously has a unique perspective related to Jesus Christ, but it is an institution that God made for all people, um, depart right. whether their covenantal relationship to, to God. And so when you separate sexuality from this purpose, this God designed purpose, there is a pathway that will follow. And by this, I mean it's it's impossible for this pathway not to unfold because when you decouple these things, when you decouple the body from the purposes of God, you then have it used and you have bodies abused uh, in ways that are can be very, very selfish and uh, 
and even destructive and deleterious to human mm-hmm. flourishing. So what what followed this decoupling in our society of sex and God? Well, um, first step, we, we, we could call sex with whoever, right, or whomever. Um, the birth control, casual sex, right, you know, songs from the 80s, sex is natural, sex is fun, uh, proliferation of pornography, and the objectification of human beings. In other words, another human being can become an object of someone's desires and appetite, natural desires and appetites, um, such that they're designed that where they're there to please each other. Um, and so when that, when that happens, what else is it for pro, you know, maybe to have babies and to have pleasure. When you separate it from that, you have this use of bodies for people's own autonomous, selfish, desires. Jesse, I ran across this article by a lady named Abigail Favell. She's an author and a writer for Notre Dame's uh, Family Life Journal. Um, And she wrote an article called The Eclipse of Sex and the Rise of Gender. Now, she has a book coming out this uh, spring called The Genesis of Gender, where she's going to take up all the kind of things that she took up in this article. But she's talking in here about when sex, male and female, kind of is deprecated for the rise of gender, what happens. And she quotes kind of the, 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 the worldview that came through Michel Foucault, which we talked about here in our deconstruction, our critical comeuppance episode in the Science and the Good series. Michel Foucault was kind of a radical homosexual he's designed designer t loss and sexuality and goodness and morality as just kind of a power game kind of deal um and, and in this article favel kind of quotes angela francis about foucault and she says sex is about bodies and pleasures because fertility doesn't matter anymore it doesn't matter whether bodies are male or female they are just all raw material for anonymous couplings this is the depersonalized view of the body that reigns in the age of contraception and so obviously they're roman catholic they have a certain view of contraception we're not going to get into that in detail jesse but downstream from sex with whoever you have this raw material bodies for pleasure bodies for love Whoever you love now, we're talk we'll call it pansexualism. And, yeah, and by the way, and I know we may get to this, but Foucault, it's not just raw material, doesn't matter whether they're male or female. It also for him and the, the kind of radical deconstructionists like him, didn't matter if they were male or female or adult or children. Yeah, for for People like Foucault and others, certainly. As you can see, in, uh, we, we talked about this in that episode about Absolutely. the 1977 petition to yeah. eliminate yeah. the age of consent for minors uh, yeah. sexually. Yeah, and this is ancient, obviously. These things were in the Greco-Roman world as practice, men and boys and things like that. Um, we're talking, though, in our civilization, downstream from the decoupling of God and sexuality. You have sex with whoever normalized, then homosexual sex made to be normative. Uh, hey, it's just normal. What used to be called unnatural is now nor- normalized, but also celebrated, or, or you have demands to, for it to be celebrated. And so I had some friends, you know, when we were living in New Jersey, where, would, who would ask about what is the, why do Christians care about gay marriage or not? Or why do we, you know, in New Jersey, we had civil unions already. We didn't right. have 
we didn't need gay marriage. Every single thing per letter was equal under the law. And a friend of mine asked, he goes, well, why, why, why do we need gay marriage then? And I was like, well, marriage is for normalization and celebration, uh, not simply for legal rights and privileges in our culture. In other words, there is an equivalency between marriage and same-sex unions that was not just desired, but wanted to be normalized and celebrated. And then the further step, enforced and litigated. Obviously, we're seeing these things where, you know, people who who don't want to celebrate a same-sex union are being forced to by law against their will. And these things are currently being litigated in our society. So homosexual sex normalized and celebrated pansexualism or, or sexuality and gender being said to be on spectrums and who we love or, or what we do with our bodies is our business and our business alone. It's, again, decoupled from God. Uh, transgenderism, transsexualism has been uh, now demanding normalization and celebration. Look at the price being paid uh, in the public arena by the author of Harry Potter for speaking out in the name of feminism. Uh, against you know the erasure of women and things like that, and Rowling has taken all sorts of uh, attacks for not wanting to, uh, and she's for transgenderism. She just doesn't want the erasure of women. So, Preston Sprinkle has written a book, Jesse called Embodied, that I recently read, and I, I love this book. It's a very very good book on transgenderism, what it is, what it is, and how to treat people. I agree with most things in the book. I don't go with his views on identity. In other words, calling someone a gay Christian or trans-Christian. I don't go with him, Jesse, on his pronoun opinions. His opinions are it's loving to use people's preferred pronouns, and I have a a linguistic, epistemic reason for not doing that. Use the person's name, be kind. But his posture and place of kindness towards people who are sexual minorities is just fantastic. In talking about this idea of gender identity, Sprinkle says, second, how many gender identities are there? Given the definition of gender identity, this is like asking how many internal senses of oneself exists. Because the shifting of, you know, from sex, male, female, to this internal uh, thought of oneself um, has multiplied, let's say, the amount of genders that there are today. And so he's asking, how many are there? Two, 10, 50? At one point, Facebook allowed 71 gender identities and now has the option of a custom gender. Perhaps there are 10,000 gender identities or more. So this is uh, when you follow not uh, an idea of design and follow your just what you want internally. This is what is connecting in our culture today. Now, the interesting thing is, Jesse, the you know percentage of transgender people in our culture has been debated. Some would estimate higher or lower what the percentage would be. But what some researchers have realized is that there's been a rapid rise, particularly amongst young girls, of identifying as transgender in our society. And one scholar named Lisa Littman at Brown University has been studying this. And she got attacked because people, I guess, were thinking she was saying that people are becoming transgender because they've been socialized to do so. Um, 
but she was just researching the data on what she she's come to call rapid onset gender dysphoria. She said rapid onset gender dysphoria because most of these kids announce that they are trans in a way that seems quite sudden to their parents and counselors. A few years ago, Litton published a peer-reviewed study on rapid onset gender dysphoria where she surveyed 256 parents who have kids, 83% who are female, uh, that fits her description of rapid onset gender dysphoria. As the parents explored the situation more, they found many common factors surrounding their children's sudden trans identity appearance. And I think this is what is happening in society. First, few of the children showed any signs of gender dysphoria or gender in, internal sense of thinking they're the other gender to their parents growing up. Uh, their new identity seemed to appear out of the blue. Many, if not all, of their friends at, at school were trans or coming out and followed. They followed their coming out of their friends as trans. Many of them uh, of the more pop became more popular at school for coming out as trans, uh, and many of them had other mental health concerns they were dealing with. And so this kind of pathway of shifting away from God's design for sex has led to sex with anyone, uh, normalization, celebration of homosexuality, pansexuality, transgenderism, and transsexualism, where the internal sense of a person's identity is determined by their psychology or their mind and not by the design of their, their bodies. It's a really disembodied move that requires... Um, our compassion, our love for human beings. But the the pathway of this sexual revolution has certainly been set. And so some people might say, what comes next? And uh, usually in those kind of conversations, Jesse, I was like, well, what comes next? I think we might say, what is already? Because already, and, and I'll put these in the show notes for you guys, uh, poly, polyamory, love of many, polygamy, uh, many spouses is growing rapidly in our culture today. Pedophilia, we mentioned that already, uh, you know, or a sexual uh, desire for children. Some of you may be familiar with the, the, the TED Talk that was under review and controversial that went on in, I think, Germany, where a scholar was advocating that pedophilia was a sexual orientation, not one that should be advocated or acted upon, but a sexual orientation nonetheless. And so pederasty, men having sex with teenage boys, this is old hat, certainly in Greco-Roman times. Uh, bestiality, having sex with animals. World-renowned ethicist Peter Singer has written on this, and in, in, he wrote a review uh, of a book called Dearest Pet. There's a New York Times article from 2001, Jesse, that I'll link in, um, where Peter Singer, an ethicist, I think he's still at Princeton, advocated for certain non-harmful sexual relationships between humans and animals that doesn't hurt the animal. Uh, necrophilia, sex with corpses, these things are all warned against in the Bible in the Bible. And certainly things are being, you know, all along this pathway endorsed more and more things that were once thought to be wrong or unnatural or immoral have, have been normalized. Our obedience to our acquiescence to the worldview that fuels these things is being asked of us. Does that mean we have to be jerks? No, it does not. We need to be kind, compassionate people, uh, befriending and loving people, no matter where they are as human beings. But it requires a, a bit of conviction to hold to this idea of embodied male-female creation uh, in the, the design and purposes of God. You know, when we think about, if I could throw something in here, Reed, if we, when we think about where do we go from here, and, and, I, and I'm always thinking about this in terms of, 
uh, local church pastor. I often, I, I go back and forth, and, and maybe you could help me here. I go back and forth between helping people to see their identity as embodied and given. Yeah. In other words, um, this is really a matter of how you understand yourself and God and who gets to determine. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, so that now, now, by the way, I want to also mention recognizing that we do live in a fallen world. Littman has found about rapid onset uh, gender dysphoria isn't the case for everybody. For some people, they experience a kind of dysphoria, something going on that is genuine and difficult. Right. Recognizing that, still, still wanting to say, hey, some of this really has to do with who gets to say. That's right. Who gets to determine? Is it you or God? That's right. That's um, right. And understanding your identity in terms of being given to you biologically by God. Yeah. And that you you may have to suffer more than other people as a result of that, but that is part of our calling as Christians to share in Christ's suffering. Anyway, identity. On the other end, it's almost a biblical hermeneutics. Yeah. So a lot of times I come back to people and and they just they're reading the Bible. They either are reading the Bible, yeah, or they're reading it entirely. Uh, in ways that I would say are outside the boundaries of maybe a faithful yeah. understanding of how we receive the word. Yeah. And so I go back and forth and then sometimes I shrug my shoulders and, and think, well, maybe it's, it's something else entirely, but yeah. So I don't know. Help me, help me. Uh, it, it is such a complex issue because the acceptance of someone's humanity, the affirmation of someone's humanity, the kindness that people are deserved because they've been made in the image of God sometimes is lacking amongst our disagreements as human beings. And one of the things, and this is something that's really real for our family, Jesse, our kids are in public high school. They're interacting with people who are either uh, claiming certain things internally about their identities. My my kids have friends that are non-binary, uh, or that's what they claim to be non-binary, or transitioning. You yeah. know, one of my daughters has a friend who's transitioning. And so we talk about this together. And I was like, well, here's the thing. Our posture and our pathway has been given to us by Jesus, right? And so there should be no doubt that kindness um, and love for human beings, love for God, love for our neighbors, love for our enemies, pray for those who persecute, is already defined for us. We're not trying to persecute anyone. We're not trying to, you know, to hurl things or insult people. We have that pathway given to us. At the same time, we don't have to bow the knee of allegiance to an ideology yeah. that we don't share, yeah. right? We don't have those convictions. We have different convictions. And so even in the interaction and dialogue with others, and I did a session on gender and sexuality for a youth apologetics conference, is that we want to be kind and compassionate when people press us or ask us either to submit to their uh, what they want us to do, like, hey, use this kind of language, don't use this kind of language, or to accept or change our views for the sake of their own ideas. One, we don't have to, but we also need to be careful in the way we interact with that. Because if someone's just wanting to label us, to say hurtful things to us, call you a bigot or a hater, or use you as some sort of a cliche, we don't have to do that. And so I've told my kids, is like, look, you should always ask your friends, hey, do you really want to know what I believe about these things. And if the answer is yes, and a, a friend really wants to take the time to engage that, then we don't just start by saying, well, you know, this goes, this anatomy part goes into that anatomy part. That settles the story. The, the story of God about creation and design and males and females and men and women and 
and families and procreation and these things that the purposes of marriage, uh, that's a story that if a compassionate friend wants to hear, we will tell mm. uh, with clarity and courage and kindness and not be bullied into. Because look, there is not a neutral cultural spaces on these things. And the idea that you can just hold your beliefs and they don't, uh, nobody will care is not true anymore. Yeah. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, page 21, he says, the most obvious evidence of this change is the way that language has been transformed to serve the purpose of rendering illegitimate any dissent from the current political consensus on sexuality. So if you don't hold to the current sexual orthodoxy, they will, they, they will come for you. So he says this, criticism of homosexuality is now homophobia. That of transgenderism is now transphobia. The use of the term phobia is deliberate and effectively places such criticism of the new sexual culture into the realm of the irrational and points toward an underlying bigotry on the part of those who hold such views. And Jesse, I just think this is non-negotiable. If you don't submit to contemporary sexual political ideology, you will be called a hateful, bigot person. And there's nothing you can do about that. I, I think some Christians think, well, if I'm just nice, they won't think such things about me. And I just don't think that's true. What what the political orthodoxy today on sexuality wants is capitulation and bowing the knee and wants you to change your views. And sadly, many Christian people and leaders do change uh, in the cultural winds about lots of things. And certainly in the 19th century, it was about certain scientific understandings of Newtonian clockwork physics, which changed later, but they were submitting, well, there can't be miracles or resurrections because that doesn't happen scientifically. In our day, it's it's this autonomous sexual cell stuff that's being demanded of the church, and, and many people capitulate, just as in earlier theologians said, we don't need resurrections and, and virgin births and miracles, and lost that. Today, many people will set aside a biblical teaching on male and female embodiment for the sake of acceptance by the current political cultural orthodoxy. I just think that's a bad trade to make. I agree. And, you know, recently I, I uh, was reading, um, ooh, Larry Hurtado, his book, Destroyer of the Gods, about the early Christian church. And um, I was struck by how, you know, there's certain things he, he talks about. The early church is bookish. Yeah, um, yeah. But one of the things he talks about is how uh, the early church was, was, was radical in different ways, yeah. some of which endeared the church to the culture, some of which repelled it, repelled it. <laughs> yeah. And the, and tip in really the areas that were repulsive in that kind of Greco Roman worldview were sexual ethics. Yeah. And monogamous marriage. Monogamous marriage. So, like, so where yeah. the prevailing worldview was things like yeah. uh, pederasty and, and which they, they viewed actually as a protection against adultery. Well, yeah. Hey, if you, you kind of get a little, yeah, you satisfy some desires of your body, it'll protect your marriage. Christians were like, no, 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 yeah. our, our marriages are to serve God and our bodies right. are to serve our marriages right. and God together. And so, of course, that, that got them persecuted because the Romans yeah. uh, didn't like that. That and, kind and of change. Be, yeah, yeah. And I think that we need to be radically, on the one hand, radically for the common good, which we think actually our se- sexual ethic is. Yes. But also in With ways— With kindness and compassionate to, to those who have different views. Yeah. yeah. 
and radically uh, standing on the word of God, not yeah. capitulating, yeah. and being willing to suffer the way that the early church did. Yeah. Again, Catholic blogger uh, Abigail Favell, she says this, I believe that the proper response to any human person is always love. But this does not exempt idea of human personhood as currently presented in our culture from scrutiny. If anything, the command to love the person and guard his or her inviolable dignity necessitates a thoughtful understanding of what it means to be a person. So if we think, Jesse, about how did this happen or where did this come from, you know, Truman's book obviously was written for this purpose. He opens this book with, I think, a fantastic paragraph where his book, uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the origins of this book, he says, lies in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. And then he says, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago, and yet, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt he would have burst out laughing or considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard not only as meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And those who think of it as meaningful are not restricted to the veterans of college seminars on queer theory or French post-revolution de corps, French post-structuralism. They are ordinary people with literal or no direct knowledge of the critical postmodern philosophies whose advocates swagger along the corridors of our most hallowed centers of learning. In other words, he wrote this book, Jesse, to say what be considered ridiculous at one time is not only accepted but demanded of others at the cost of reputation and even uh, even more so. So his his book traces through the causes of these things as the acceptance of ideologies that comes from uh, the uh, modernist trinity of Darwin, um, Karl Marx, and Freud. Darwin, in other words, saying our bodies are not really designed or there's no telos behind them in darwinian theory objective morality which is has no basic in physics or biology is banished from us right remember our series science and the good uh, marx would say everything including truth claims and religion are power dynamics of oppressed and oppressor and so any speaking of truth or or thing is just a power move of you know for marx originally it was for rich people over poor people workers unite uh, now that has this oppressed Oppressor, uh, oppressed view has been marshaled into lots of areas of society. And then Freud, who thought sex is the highest good and self-expression is of the highest good. Anyone who suppresses individual expression sexuality is doing something evil. And this is something we didn't see probably as much, Jesse, in America as in maybe in European academia who went through, you know, this communism kind of idea coming and then fascism and Nazism fighting and and what happened in Germany. And then post-Nazism, Europeans asking, how could this happen? How could such a fascist totalitarian regime arise in this educated kind of place uh, in Germany, which was technologically sophisticated into intellectually sophisticated, at least in the European mindset, uh, arose to this kind of Adolf Hitler stuff. And so many uh, thinkers, uh, which were called neo-Marxist or or post-fascist thinkers, were wrestling with this. 
And this idea of utter liberation from political tyranny was linked with this idea of sexual liberation that led to the sexual revolution. This is a part uh, where uh, Truman is quoting a, a German guy from the mid-20th century named Reich, um, and he says this. In the book, The Sexual Revolution, Reich argues that attitudes to the family amongst young people are a gauge at the level of political radicalism that exists. Conservative political conformists regard the family as an unquestionable good thing. Here we go. Radical see it's something that needs to be overcome or destroy the nuclear family. And so at the heart of Reich's revolutionary program is sex education and the need for children and adolescents to be allowed sexual freedom. This is simply because these are the basis of political freedom, as their absence is the basis for political oppression. In a key passage from Reich, he states the matter as follows. And this is a German thinker. The free society will provide ample room and security for the gratification of natural needs. Thus, it will not only prohibit a love, not prohibit a love relationship between two adolescents of the opposite sex, but will give it all manner of social support. Such a society will not prohibit a child's masturbation, but on the contrary, will probably conclude that any adult who hinders the development of a child's sexuality should be severely dealt with. Truman goes on to say the closing phrase in the above quotation is interesting because it makes it clear what he's really doing here. While asserting that the patriarchal family is the single most important unit of ideological control for an oppressive and totalitarian regime, Reich also believes that the state must be used to coerce families and where necessary actively punish those who dissent from sexual liberation being proposed. In short, the state has the right to intervene in family matters because the family is potentially the primary opponent of political liberation through its cultivation and policing of traditional sexual codes. So is sexuality political? Absolutely. Is it political uh, accidentally? No, it's very intentional. For Jesse and for Jesse and me, this is but the political arena isn't just our our fight. We're to say, hey, look, we're not trying to enforce traditional sexual codes as a political move of conservatism. We're trying to say what is God designed and what is beautiful. And the political reality around all these sexual things in our culture can be toxic to Christians if we forget our own purpose of loving God, loving neighbor, and seeing embodied design as a really good thing. We're not doing the same fight that many in our culture are doing amongst politicals and liberals we're talking about seeing human beings as what they are created by God and living accordingly uh, so that we might love people well and use our own bodies not as instruments of debasement or abuse or destructiveness, but as instruments to honor God and love people. So what will our response, Jesse, be? We're going to have, we're going to have one more episode. Uh, I think we're going to call it Embodied Carnage and Embodied Hope, both at the same time. In the sexual wilderness, I think we see a lot of carnage and broken humans that are valuable to God mm. and a lot of hope. And the pathway of hope is defined by our Lord and exemplified by the embodied God, Jesus Christ. And so our hope is not some recovery of some political uh, regime. Our hope is to recover a view that a human being is beautiful, designed, purposeful, and embodied for potential for good or evil. And so we will finish out our series with the hope that we have both 
to live as fully embodied creatures and to use our embodiment uh, to honor God and love other people. Revolution of the body. Yeah. You know, I'm looking forward to our next episode, Reed, and I'm looking forward to thinking about how we stand where we stand because we believe God has spoken. We believe that God has not just spoken, but that what he's spoken and intended is good and is, is meant for our flourishing. You know, even thinking about political involvement at the end of the day is about this is good for me and you and our, and our common good of our, you know, our communities. And that's why it's important to stand on these things. God that's has right. spoken. That's right. He's intended these things for good. And, 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 and we're not arguing for Christians having to be gagged or apolitical or can't vote. Correct. We have a free society in which we do get to vote and exercise those rights and privileges we have as American citizens. We advocate for that. What I do want to warn against is to make that fight the fight and the only fight. Because our definition, our uh, clarity, our reason, our telos, our design comes from a different place uh, than uh, the fighting political. And there are biblical things that are being fought for in politics that we should stand for, no matter who's advocating for them and standing for things that are are just and good for others, um, wherever they may be found. And so we do that embodied in a world that certainly has embodied carnage, right? And embodied, we even think today, Jesse, we're in a situation where we're watching, uh, in our country at least, we're watching uh, another country invading another country where people are uh, being destroyed. Their embodied lives and reality are being destroyed. And the Ukrainian ambassador was very clear on the news the other day. And they're like, what do we want? We want them to leave our country and stop killing us. Um, and certainly that level of violence gives another dimension, I think, to our hearts and minds about doing good and not weaponizing our bodies mm-hmm. to uh, hurt others and mm-hmm. dishonor God. Peacemakers who so in peace is our calling as the people of God, but not without conviction, not without standing for truth and purpose Amen. in in a world that might, quite frankly, despise us for it. And so that's where we live as far as it's up to us. Live at peace with all people. We leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. The judge of the earth will do right. And we have to have our confidence in him and leave our confidence in his hand. In the throne room of the king. Uh, the podcast is produced in partnership with the Bonhoeffer Owls. Review us on iTunes, five stars are acceptable. Send your comments, feedback, uh, nasty emails to Jesse at, no, I'm just kidding, uh, to info at gospelunderground.org. We are dialogue. Take your place in the borderlands, and this is in the borderlands, Jesse, between the church right. and culture. We want to see you out there. Love and peace. Peace.